Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. The most beautiful flowers and plants bloom with fertilizer, water, and light. Today's guest, Carrington Smith, says in her book, quote, I had been told to shut up and not tell my story. It makes people feel uncomfortable. But the truth is that my power, my secret weapons, my gifts are in my story. That is where I discovered the authentic me, where I discovered the gifts, the buried treasure, and all the shit, which turns out to be the fertilizer, right? It is in the debris of life, in the fire, that I found out who I was and what I was made of, unquote. Stay tuned for my interview with Carrington. She's here. Carrington, say hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. You bet. To hear her story and this process of blooming that she has so beautifully come through. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee. And I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Carrington Smith is the author of Blooming, Finding Gifts in the Shit of Life. What a title. (laughs) Despite being born into a legacy of wealth, life was not so kind to her. Carrington has survived childhood abuse, sexual assault, two divorces, mountains of debt, religious manipulation, and the loss of close friends. I have read her book and can vouch for all of those stories that she shares in there. In This book, the best-selling debut memoir, she combines her wit and her wisdom, and she shares this journey from trauma to triumph. And today, we get to talk to her about the shift in mindset. She lives a life that's filled with joy and opportunity and purpose, and she's done that very intentionally as she's learned about herself. So Carrington, let's talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's start with your story. Everybody's story starts at home. And for you, that's a that's a kind of a rough place. You spend a number of chapters giving your background with your family, um, the incident with you and your father on the bike or the toilet incident at church or your mother's response to your rape. And these stories set a scene of childhood ooh, trauma and a lack of support. Can you share some of these most pivotal stories with us? And then let's talk about what gifts they held for you. The irony of one of those stories is when I originally wrote it, I gave it the title, Holy Shit. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the story of, yes, that is the story of uh, me going to church with my family and not feeling well and being forced to sit through church, even though I was obviously we find out later suffering from the stomach flu and was told that I had to sit there and suffer through it. And as soon as church let out, I ran, I'd been kind of tooting to help relieve the stress of, you know, the the gas in my stomach. And when I ran to the bathroom after the the, uh, service left out, discovered that, well, first of all, thankfully I was wearing a long dress 
but I pulled up my dress and it was absolutely coated with shit inside. And this is one of my most vivid childhood memories of me pulling my dress up. And I can remember the, the weight of the shit on the dress. I can remember taking off my white lace bobby socks and throwing them in the female disposal bin and having to try to clean myself up and no one coming to look for me. And finally going out, you know, after a long time trying to find my parents and they were sit, talking in a circle with a bunch of, you know, church elders. And I went up and I tugged on my mom's skirt and said, mom, I need help. And she turned around and said, don't interrupt. And then when she finally smelled me, she's like, go wait in the car. And I mean, as a child, I mean, to, to be like literally coated in shit from the waist down to the point that when I walked out the door to the car, it was like a slug leaving a trail of shit on the marble in the church and just to be so ignored. And it's, to me, it's no surprise that later in life, I, I developed um, issues with my colon. I think there's a direct correlation there and it's, you really do the body, the body keeps score. Right. And I was told when I could and could not go to the bathroom even. So, well, I, I think for sure our most vivid childhood memories just from a space of survival are always the ones that traumatize us the most. Like my very first childhood memory was being in kindergarten and we didn't have very much money in in kindergarten. You got like a ding dong with a candle in it for your birthday. My very first memory as a child is that they forgot my birthday and how um, I didn't get my ding dong and no, you know, the teacher, nobody acknowledged me on my day. And that's, you know, in comparison, I'm, I'm not doing a comparison to yours, but I'm just noting it was just such a traumatic thing to, yeah. to be a little kid who wanted this treat and to number one, not be acknowledged. I mean, it took me weeks. I could just remember how, how could they not remember me? How could, well, it's, I, it's, how it's could about, that have been overlooked? It's about feeling seen, right? And if you're not feeling seen, then when those things happen, they're monumental. Yeah. Well, and your story, as a parent looking at that, you could see how, you know, parents all the time are saying, oh, you know, don't interrupt, you know, go stand back. But this story piled on all the other stories that you shared in the book show that it's not an, a single incident of a parent being, you know, impatient with a, a child at church. It's actually right. something much, much more than that. Tell us about the story with your dad and you on the bike. Yeah. So my dad decided that he wanted to take the entire family on a bicycle trip around the neighborhood. And we lived on this cliff overlooking the water. So to go on the lower part of the circle, you had to like go up and down these huge hills. And this is back in the day when we had those uh, bicycle seats on the back of the bike where there was no place to put your feet Nowadays, this is unthinkable, but I was sitting on the back of my father's bike, being the youngest child and not able to ride my own bike yet, and holding my legs out for this long period of time. By the time we got to the top of the hill, I was just begging him to stop. I was, Dad, I can't hold my legs out any longer. I, my legs are killing me and killing me. He's like, Stop whining. We're almost home. Stop whining. And as he finished saying that, my leg just, they just collapsed from fatigue. 
and my foot got stuck in the spokes of the bike and twisted around backwards and my foot popped out of my ankle popped out of the socket and I could see the exposed bone there's blood pouring everywhere and my foot is backwards and and I'm screaming and I'm just feeling so just betrayed by my father and I get picked up and carried into this you know neighbor's house and put in the kitchen sink while he runs off and gets the car and all of that and it was just this complete lack of sensitivity of just being deaf to your child crying out. Like I, I can't take it anymore. And it was one of the reasons that that story is so uh, important in my life is it's a recurring theme of how many times can I scream out? I can't, it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. I can't take it anymore. And it would take me getting to a massive crisis before anybody would say, Oh, gee, maybe we need to pay attention to her. But yeah, in that situation, I mean, my, it was a bloody mess. So, wow. I can only imagine. And, you know, when you tell the story in the book, there's also, you know, more of an explanation about how many times you asked your father to stop and just yeah. his, his uncaring, your father was a doctor and there are a lot of things that come up in, in the stories of, even though he has the skill set to help you in so many ways, as you need it, he never makes the time or the yeah. effort. In fact, sometimes, you know, contrary, right? He sounds like, well, let, let me just say, you said here in, in the book that what you learned, so the bloom that came off of the gift that came from this relationship with a really narcissistic father was that you learned how to recognize evil. Yeah. That evil, that's a strong word. That's a strong claim. Yeah. Well, you know, I wouldn't have recognized it had I not read the book by M. Scott Peck called People of the Lie. And I, I my intuition, uh, my subconscious was, you know, started recognizing evil as a very young child. And but I, I didn't understand that's what I was recognizing until I read that book. And it really crystallized for me that that's what was happening. Uh, I did hear a podcast recently um, where they were talking about how the subconscious in the analytical mind, you know, as a child, your subconscious speaks much more loudly and you don't develop that analytical mind until, you know, you're like around 10. And so it's funny that I remember as a child saying things about people with no filter. There was no analysis. I would meet somebody and say, I just met somebody that there was a man that came over to our house for a Bible study. I tell that story in the book about how he shows up and I meet him and I literally take my parents aside and say, never let that man in our house ever again. And they thought I was nuts. <laughs> and I said, no, I said, he's been to prison for rape and he'll do it again. And again, they're like, where is this coming from? And sure enough, a few months later, he was kicked out of the church for that reason. He How old were on. you? I, I was like seven, eight, nine, around how that did, age. How did you know what rape was that? at that young of an age? Well, I think what happens is that our subconscious is picking things up constantly before our consciousnesses. And when I was like four or five years old, I was walking to school with my sister and we were, we saw a man expose himself to us and called the police. And that's a whole other story. But I think because of that experience, I, had been exposed to sort of this inappropriate male energy. 
And we also had talks about the birds and the bees and that sort of thing at a much younger age. Um, my mom had a, a tubal pregnancy. And so I think that between those two things, I had an understanding, but I was able to pick up on that energy and immediately speak to it and say, you know, this is one of those things. Stay away from Yeah. Me. Yeah. So one of the stories in the book that really, oh, I was just so angry at your mother <laughs> was when you came to her after your rape and you finally, you know, went to her to talk to her about it. And her response was just blew me away. Do you mind sharing some of that story? Yeah, sure. So I was raped in college and was told by my sorority sister to keep it a secret because uh, another sorority sister a few years before had uh, been raped. And when she volunteered that story, she was kicked out and labeled a slut. And so it was, that was just the environment that we were in back then. So when I finally, I was really depressed because I wasn't talking about it, wasn't dealing with it. And so when I finally got home, I confided in my mother and I was just a mess. I'd been calling home saying I wanted to kill myself. And well, let me just interject here. I think for the story, it's really important to understand how traumatic it it was to you. Like you had started sleeping in and not going to class. And I mean, you, it really was a full on trauma of dealing with what had happened to you and not finding any support with your sorority sisters and having people, you know, not believe you. And, and I mean, it, it was really at a DEFCON five sort of situation and you approach your mother at this point. Yeah. I approached my mother who ironically, uh, had been, had served as the executive director of the crisis pregnancy center, uh, which is the anti-abortion sort of version of Planned Parenthood where they would counsel people who had been raped about what their options were. And so here I share this with my mother and her response to me is she stood up, got red in the face, was extremely angry and said, we are, I am so disappointed in you. We had hoped that you would remain a virgin until you were married and you are never to speak of this and you are never to tell your father. I can't even imagine how devastated you must have been. Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt so worthless. And, and you know, I, I, I mean, I knew she was right about telling my father. That was for certain. But I'd really hoped that she would be there to support me and counsel me through this. And so I just felt abandoned. Well, and, absolutely, because everyone yeah. else you had turned to that would possibly be a support, all your closest people had said the same thing. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't, so I didn't speak of it and I didn't talk about it to anyone for six years. And this is a, one of those great life lessons. And that is I did learn very personally that when you say that you're, you don't want something to define you. And that to you means that you don't talk about it and you know, because you don't want to experience the shame of saying something happened to you that you're you know, embarrassed about. It's the most detrimental thing possible because you, that, trauma just festers and you end up, it ends up showing up in your behaviors in other ways. And it wasn't until I did start talking about it and dealing with it and getting therapy that I began to heal. And how long did that take? Well, I mean, initially, you know, six years was the first time I ever spoke of it, but it took a number of years of 
getting therapy and even after getting therapy still kind of, I mean, I have to give some credit here to Brene Brown because it's her thing about owning your story and understanding that, wow, if I actually finally speak up and own my story and claim this as part of me and see that it is part of the fabric of who I am and actually some good things came of this. And that is when you are tried, I mean, if you think about, you know, iron, the the hotter stuff gets, the stronger you become. And so because I had survived this, I had this incredible emotional resilience and that in turn bred a quiet confidence. And people would tell me I had presence. Like I would walk in and just own the room. And I never really could put my finger on that. But as I looked back and really explored the shit in my life, I realized that that came from that experience. I think that that is so fabulous to acknowledge, so fabulous to recognize, and so fabulous to share. Because when people are in those dark places, when they're just getting beat up, and like you did year after year after year, there were just more things piled on, which you share in the book, your story. But to be able to look at it and to find how those things fertilized in you, the blooming that came out later, which is, of course, where you get the title of your book, which I think is just, you know, really brilliantly put. Let's talk about the importance of owning your story then. You started in with that. In your experience, how did you do this? Well, so actually it's kind of ironic because I ended up, uh, you know, I practiced law for seven years and then I ended up becoming an executive search professional. So, you know, I moved CEOs and general counsel and people like that, top level executives around in companies. And in that process, I interview executives on a regular basis. And I would ask people this question, which is, we all have moments in life that define us. Can you tell me about one of those moments and how it shapes you, how it shaped you? And someone finally said to me, what about you? And I was kind of, I'd always lived in fear that somebody would ask me that question. And the the irony of that is, is when that person asked me it, I had already actually started writing this book because it had occurred to me that it was time to tell my story. And so I kind of wrote it in the framework of defining moments. There's not like one moment. It's like, it's a continuous thing of, you know, constantly being shaped through all of our life experiences. But that's sort of the framework I used to share my story. Well, what were a couple of those defining moments? You share those in the book. You're like, this was the pivotal point. Give us a couple of those. The one that's like the most clear is when I was in law school, um, driving home at night from the French Quarter, we came, and this you have to remember, there were no cell phones at this point in time. (laughs) So- um, And where were you living? Where were you at school? I was living, I'm sorry, I was in New Orleans at Tulane Law School and driving home on um, St. Charles Avenue which is the big thoroughfare from the French Quarter to where Tulane is, uptown, we came across this man who was bloodied and in the middle of the road. And so I had a girlfriend with me and I was like, we have to stop. And she's like, you're crazy. And I said, well, I can't in good conscience leave this man bloody in the middle of the road. I and mean, he was smack dab in the middle of the road. Somebody else will come along and hit him. 
And I immediately recognized this moment as the Good Samaritan from the Bible. And I knew which role that I needed to play. There was no question in my mind. And so for me, this was one of those, it was God's God testing me. And I was like, okay, I know what's happening here. This is this parable and I know what my role is. And so we had to go back to her apartment. Well, first of all, we dragged him to the side of the road and he was still unconscious. We went back to her apartment to call 911 because we didn't have cell phones. By the time we got back there, the people that had beat him up had returned. And this man was standing over him with a tire iron to finish him off. And, you know, I think sometimes when we get into these moments, adrenaline flows, right? So I got out of my car and started screaming at this man to leave this man, this other man alone, and that the cops were on the way. And the man ended up being transported to the hospital and, and you know, happy ending. But the thing is, it was one of those moments where, you know, we talk about how you perform when nobody's looking. There, I mean, other than my friend being there, this wasn't about doing something to impress somebody. This was about who I was and, and what my values were and was I going to live them? Because I easily could have driven on past and she would have been down with that. But I knew that I had to do this. And so for me, it was a really good test of who I was and what I was about. One of the things I get from reading your book, because, you know, you tell it chronologically, is just watching how through each event and as time flows, you have different aha moments and the coming to own your story and realizing the power in doing that. And, and these moments where something really shifts for you, like it's a line upon line, precept upon precept process. Life is not something that we just get figured out and go yeah. from there. Like we have one experience and then another and another, and we learn and we have, like you say, those, those pivotal moments. I want to ask you, what was the power? What have you found is the power behind owning your whole big messy story at this point in your life? Wow. It's about living authentically. It's about letting go of what everybody else thinks and wants to impose on you. I mean, one of the big reasons I wrote the book is I think people have this perception of me. They just take one look at me and they make up a story about who I am and you know what I look like, what my life is like. And my one of the things I wanted people to understand is everybody has a story. Peel it back and you go, wow, I had no idea. I was so wrong about this girl. And so, I mean, my friends here in Austin really tried to keep me in the box and wanted me just to be the good time girl, happy go lucky and not speak my truth and not evolve as a person. And I realized that for me to survive and to be the person God intended me to be, I had to really demonstrate who I was and not pretend to be somebody else and stop doing everything to make everybody else happy. And so it was by living life authentically and being vulnerable with people that I really, you know, came to own my power. You know, what I love about this is that that is the same process that I had to go through to love my story. I had to get to a point where I loved it. And that's where the whole podcast comes from. So we are talking simpatico here, you know, and like everybody who's had trauma or embarrassing things or shameful things or, you know, whatever that package looks like to you, there has to come a point of 
acceptance and reframing, even reframing. So it goes from victimhood to empowerment and meaning yes. and understanding and growth. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about love your story. And that's what you have done. So we're so glad to have you here to give us an, an example of what this looks like. Amen. <laughs> You're exactly right. <laughs> so you also went through a couple divorces and let's just talk about the gifts rather than get into all of that. My divorce gave me freedom. You said, suddenly I had a clean slate. I had the opportunity to design a life that made me happy and brought me joy, unquote. So this, this is the gift your divorce has brought you. Yes. You want to tell yes. me more? Yeah. So when I was at my low point going through my second divorce, one of my friends said to me, with adversity comes opportunity. And, you know, when you're in the depths of it, you don't want to hear that. I was just like, this sucks. Yeah, I'm let me let me wade in my pool of shit for a while. But her words stayed with me and I couldn't shake them. And I really came to realize that if I had that in mind. I could look at my experience differently when you talk about reframing. And so suddenly my divorce wasn't about all that I had lost. It was about all that I had gained. How, while I was saying goodbye to my old life, I had this opportunity for a blank slate and a new life that I could design myself. And I could just create this whole new life and group of friends and I just get the chills talking about it. Um, seeing that, you know, shifting from the negative of what was happening to me to the positive was so empowering. And while I don't wish divorce on anyone, I do hope to get people to the other side, viewing it as the gifts that are coming from it, because there are gifts. Yep, there absolutely are. One of my favorite things just about life in general is how everybody is so different. Everybody brings different gifts and different abilities. And I love... To me, that's the color of life, right? I like agree. if everybody was like me, yeah. you know, we wouldn't need anybody else. So a lot of your story has been a process of this self-discovery. And in your book, you quote Coco Chanel, you say, quote, in order to be irreplaceable, one must always be different, unquote. Yes. I loved that. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that journey to self-acceptance and self-love and, and embracing your different. Well, I think... I mean, I, as I, I mentioned earlier, I, you know, growing up, I was trying to please my parents. When I was married, I was trying to please my mate, you know, as, you know, I was trying to please my client. I was trying to, you know, please my employer. I was trying to fit in my sorority. I was trying to fit in the junior league. I was a member of a country club. Like everything was about fitting in. And I was dying inside. I was absolutely dying inside. And coming to the realization that the only path to happiness for me was, you know, being my snowflake, being my unique self, you know, that's where I, I had to end up. I, I, I couldn't continue to make everyone else happy because it really became a survival thing for me. Well, isn't it, and isn't it wonderful just to have the freedom of accepting you and the things that you have to give and letting other people do the same thing because it's just so rich. I agree. Absolutely. And I encourage people to do, I talk about in the book about how I had to go through this period of self-discovery to even figure out what I like to eat. 
<laughs> the music I like to listen to because I had given even up, you know, that part of myself to other people that I would go to the restaurants they wanted to go to. I would listen to their music. I had given up that much of my identity to make other people happy. And so, yeah. Well, I was going to say, and, and how much fun would it be just to be in that place of figuring it out? Because that's such a place of discovery. Like, Ooh, yeah. What music really like do, do I like? What movies do I really like? Well, and even now with fashion, because I've always been, I mean, I like to, you know, dress fashionably and fit in, of course, why I love Coco Chanel, but even now I'm getting a little more daring, like saying, well, why do I limit myself? Why don't I just be a little bit more daring? Because the people who are daring are the ones that we we gravitate to. Those are the people who we admire. So it's the people who really own themselves that we are the most energized by. And so the more I kind of, that's sort of the gift of age too, is sort of giving myself permission to let go and really be the full embodiment of who I was meant to be. Well, and I think the more that we individually do that, the more peaceful we live, the more satisfied we are. Yeah. So what message do you want, do you most want people to understand about this process of blooming as we traverse through this journey of life? Yeah, I think it goes really to the title of the book. And that is in order to bloom, we have to do maybe sort of the, the ugliest part and Brene Brown repeat. Uh, she refers to it as owning your story. I talk about actually going back and taking a look at the traumas, the difficulties, the failures of life. And that's where the rich stuff is. You know, they say success is a poor teacher, but (laughs) the failure trauma, you really learn something. And so, but go back and embrace those things and take ownership of them and look at it and say, okay, how can I take this and from something that was done to me into something that was given to me and reshape it and reframe the story to propel me through life instead of being a drain on me. And it's, it is, it's that whole reframing mindset um, and living that on a daily basis. So that anytime something happens, that is a negative experience. You very quickly go to the opportunity in it as opposed to living in the the negative space for so long. Love it. Taking notes right now. <laughs> Thank like, you. I like that. Something that was, instead of something that was done to me, something that was given to me. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. powerful. Well, where can we find your book? Yeah, on amazon.com. So, uh, and it's also an audio. Oh, fun. Okay. Again, the book is called Blooming, Finding Gifts in the Shit of Life by Carrington Smith. And you are going to find the show notes on loveyourstorypodcast.com and I will have her social media links and I will have a link to buy the book. So you can go there and find everything you need to do. Carrington, any final thoughts you want to share before we part ways? Just words of encouragement to people out there. I, I do want to acknowledge that when you're going through stuff, I want to give everybody permission. You know, you need to experience those feelings and work through all those emotions But I just, I also want to leave people with that little piece of hope. And that is that as you go through that experience and heal to look to to reframe it and find the opportunity in the adversity. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me, Lori. This was great. In each 
each of the interviews on the Love Your Story show, our purpose is to share the stories of our lives and to learn from one another how we got through them. That's what stories do. That's one of the purposes of them. They inspire and they teach. Well, Carrington's book more or less sums up what we are doing here on every show. We are listening and we are learning how to bloom despite the hard stuff. But I think we're far enough along here to note that in the end, we can really thrive because of the hard stuff that we go through. We learn who we are as our character unfolds, and we learn and we grow through those things that happen to us, whether it's from our own choices or the choices of others. We become strong because we have to. We become empathetic because now we understand things that we didn't know before the fertilizer got shoveled our way. We become resilient because we learned to bounce back. We learned to regroup. We learned to stand back up. We bloom because of the fertilizer. This is such an important thing to embrace and understand, especially when you're in the low places to realize there is purpose. It's a rough game, and it's one we often want to tap out of. But understanding how it's played can help a lot when the growth spurts happen. Your challenge this week is to choose one of your past challenges, something really tough that you went through, and to journal at least one page about what you gained from that experience. Just let it free flow. Nobody needs to see it but you as you write just top of mind. And by the end of that page, and you can go on to more pages if you want, but you'll be able to dig through the stuff that you've put down and you're going to be able to find a gift or two or maybe three. They're always there. Have a beautiful week and share this right now. Just hit the share button, text it to somebody who you know, someone in your life who's struggling. We'll let the show um, remind them that there are gifts to be found in the hard stuff. We'll see you in two weeks. Thank you.